come on in, make yourselves comfortable. If you need a lesson, hold up your hand. I was walking in this morning and, and uh, I was offered a lesson. I told them I'd already read it. I didn't need it, so we got extra copies. Uh, <laughs> Y'all come on in and uh, just uh, make yourselves at home. There's plenty of room. People can squeeze in if we need to, but uh, to this morning we've got a little elbow room out there. So uh, y'all just make yourselves comfortable. I'm going to give everybody a chance to grab a seat. Um, <clears throat> have y'all had a good week? It's been a good week. A few of you are saying no, and... Uh, Sorry. Um, the service, I think, for Perry's father is going to be Tuesday morning. Um, it's my understanding. And uh, if you all want to know about that, I know Danny and Carol Way had a good week. They had uh, way too many children, grandchildren. Um, they had triplets this week for grandchildren. <laughs> they came in this morning. I asked them how they were doing. They said they're doing great. They're seeing threes. And, uh, and so they're happy and, and life is good. Anybody else need a lesson? Mark Craver's still holding up some. Um, I, don't, I don't see any hands, Mark, but yeah, there's some hands, yeah. Okay, um, we're going to try and finish Martyrs this morning. It's Martyrs Week 4. Um, and, and once we get through Martyrs, uh, uh, we've got some fun things we're going to do. We're going to be talking the next couple of weeks about Christian heresy. Uh, the heresies that we're going to look at in the early church, there were two, uh, what, what I'm going to divide up into kind of two heresies. One heresy uh, it was the Gnostic heresy, which the closest thing we've got to that today is the New Age movement. But the New Age movement's actually fairly close to the Gnostic heresies in some ways. And these were heresies that confronted the church toward the end of biblical times and on into the first and second centuries. And so we will uh, uh, look at those heresies for probably two weeks. And then we're going to look at a heresy started by a fellow named Montanus. And it's the, the Montanism is the kind of heresy. The closest thing you'd find to it, it's uh, got some great similarities with some of the charismatic movement that's taken place in the last hundred years. <clears throat> and so uh, we will look at, at those uh, early church issues. We're going to follow probably three weeks of that with a couple of weeks on how the Bible was put together. And uh, 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 that happened in the first couple of hundred years of the church. We will look at that. We'll try in the process of that to look at some of the early Christian books that did not make it into the Bible. We'll also look at some of the early books that were not Christian that claimed to be that didn't make it into the Bible. And these are going to be some of the books, for example, that are referenced in the Da Vinci Code, if you've read that or, or are alerted to that. So uh, anybody who you know who might be interested in these subjects, the, that's the goal. Uh, I start a trial a week from tomorrow in New Jersey. And so uh, uh, it's going to take me out of town for the next five weeks. Uh, uh, um, but I will be coming back uh, uh, to see uh, my wife and kids and uh, mom and sisters and all, uh, uh, and to teach this class. So, so we will continue through the class, but uh, y'all might be praying for me during that time because uh, th there are not as many minutes in the day as I will be, be uh, wishing for. The way I want to introduce class this morning, I want to throw out a phrase for you, two words. It's apostolic fathers. If you go to the bookstore or you go to Amazon.com, um, you can buy books that are the apostolic fathers. Here's a copy of mine 
Um, I've, I've got many copies of these things, but this one I, I really like. This is the one I read most. Um, it's got the Greek on one side and the English on the other. The Greek is very hard to read. The English is uh, um, very readable. This is one of the best English translations of the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, it's available also in softback. Michael Holmes is the fella who's, who's kind of put it into the best English. It was originally translated by Joseph Barber Lightfoot, J.B. Lightfoot in the late 1800s. But Michael Holmes has kind of brought the English up to date. This is the soft cover of the same book that's available from Amazon.com. Um, if you ever get the Druthers, this is a number of you come up to me periodically and say, what book should I add to my library for what you did today or for what you did there? Um, the Apostolic Fathers is, is an interesting book to add. The phrase Apostolic Fathers was first uh, coined by a French guy named Jean Cotier. And in the late 1600s, he published a set of writings and he wrote in Latin, and the title in Latin would have been Books of the Apostolic Fathers, and no one had ever used that phrase before. Now, I've heard the phrase as I was a child, uh, well, not as a child, but when I was young, as I, in college, and, and then I finally started having to study these things uh, 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 in school, and, and it was interesting for me. I want to ask, how many of you have heard the phrase before, Apostolic Fathers? Okay, a good bit of you have. And that doesn't surprise me. They, they weren't really fathers <clears throat> that we know of. They're not famous, at least, because of their children. Um, uh, they, uh, uh, the apostolic fathers are not um, apostles either. The name comes from the idea that these were fathers of the early church that were either appointed to their position by the apostles or at least knew the apostles, or at least followed pretty clearly apostolic teaching right on the heels of the apostles. Does that make sense? So that's how they get the name apostolic fathers. There are three main apostolic fathers in the early church. Clement of Rome, and that's the fellow we read about and studied. I think it was lesson two when we had Clementine. Um, Clementine. Uh, Clement of Rome... Ignatius of Antioch, that's the fellow we studied last week who was on his way to be a martyr and in the last two weeks of his life wrote the seven letters. The third main apostolic father is Polycarp, and that's who we're going to study this week. Uh, uh, in addition, there are some other apostolic fathers that we don't know the names of. It's just whoever wrote this. So, for example, the Didache, which is something we studied in like week three, I believe, is included in the Apostolic Fathers. There's the Epistle of Barnabas that we're not going to really study. But we'll make a reference to it and look at it briefly when we start talking not only about the Bible, but different ways of interpreting the Bible. Because the Epistle of Barnabas is a, a representative of this whole school of Bible interpretation that came out of Alexandria, Egypt in the early church. It's, it's what we would consider, maybe, depending on who you are, a bit bizarre. They took the Old Testament and they would interpret everything allegorically. Just about everything. And, it, it, and they would say it's literally true in an allegorical sense. And, and everything had three levels of meanings. It's, it's real bizarre. But we'll talk about that uh, at that point. We won't study the epistle itself in any depth. There's another writing, the shepherd of Hermes, who um, uh, uh, wrote a book that uh, some folks even wanted to put into the New Testament, but uh, it 
really doesn't fit in the New Testament. It's got some weird things in it. Um, we probably will not go into that much depth in that, but it's the one that says after you become a Christian, after you're baptized, after you become a Christian, you get one sin, and that's it. <clears throat> it's a tough book. Um, and uh, uh, it's got some interesting history in the church. So we won't look at the book dedicated, but, but we will make some references to it as we go through theology and the way theology grew as the church grew to understand the depths and the riches of, of God and what he had done. So these, there's a couple others. The, the epistle to Dionysus that is out there and a fragment of Papias which is out there. But in the main, these are the apostolic fathers. Um, what I want to do this morning is we're going to look at Polycarp uh, uh, in, in some detail. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. It's modern Izmir in Turkey. It's a coastal town in Turkey about an hour's drive south from Istanbul. Izmir is what it's called today. In the early church, it was called Smyrna. Uh, in the Roman times, it was called Smyrna, I should say. It changed its name to Izmir when it was conquered by... Uh, 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 the uh, uh, Muslim hordes uh, uh, after the era of Christianity really passed in that, that um, segment of the world. If you went there today, you'd find a church that's the Church of St. Polycarp. And it was built in the 1600s, but Polycarp is still remembered kind of as a patron saint of the area. Uh, Polycarp was the bishop there. He was the bishop there and, and, and actually was the bishop there at the time Ignatius passed through. When Ignatius wrote to Polycarp in 110, that letter that we talked about last week but didn't look at, that letter was to Polycarp as the young bishop of the church of Smyrna. Um, we know about Polycarp from that letter. We also know about Polycarp because Polycarp wrote a letter to the Philippian church, same Philippian church we have in the Bible. It's about 60 years after Paul wrote his, Polycarp wrote his letter to the Philippian church. There's a third apostolic father writing that deals with Polycarp, and it's called the martyrdom of Polycarp. We're going to look at all three of these writings this morning and uh, uh, try and unfold who this fellow was. It's interesting for me because <clears throat> I love to watch people develop. I love to know what makes people tick. I like to know what goes on in their brain and what went on in their lives that make them who they are today. I look at who I am today and in some ways I'm very much who I was 20 or 30 years ago or 40 years ago even. But in some ways I'm very different. I've talking to my son about this uh, uh, and our son said uh, uh, he's 21, almost 22. He says, you know, I'm trying to figure out when it was in my life where I really had my identity of who I am. And, 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 and that's who I was, and, and then that's just kind of changed and built. But, but when was enough of me formed that I had this conscious identity that I still stick with? And I thought, well, that's interesting for a 22-year-old kid to say that, or a 21-year-old kid to say that. I'm at 45 and a half, and I'm trying to figure out the same thing. Now, my grandmother is at, like, she's not here, is she? She's like 150. <laughs> We're trying to figure out when, of course, she had mom when she was 130, so mom's just 20. We're trying to figure out, I, I want to ask her, did, when, when was that point where she really feels like her identity was shaped? 
With Polycarp, it's interesting for me to look at in those frameworks because we really have about 57 years of his history. And so we can see this man for 57 years of his Christian faith. We can see him uh, uh, when he was a bishop in this letter from, Ig from uh, Ignatius. Polycarp's probably in his late 30s to his 40s at the time. And Polycarp lives to be 90-something and before he dies. And we see him at several snapshots throughout this time. We see him not only in these three writings, but uh, Irenaeus, who was a contemporary late in life of Polycarp, writes about Polycarp. Irenaeus says, I can describe, Irenaeus is writing to a, a guy who's left the faith, who's become a heretic. And Irenaeus is trying to, to bring him back into the faith. And he's reminding this fella. He says, he's reminding him of Polycarp. And he's, he ultimately says, you know, if Polycarp were here, he would shake his finger at you and tell you you're wrong. I can describe the very place in which the blessed Polycarp used to sit, his personal appearance, and how he would describe his interactions with the Apostle John and with the rest who had seen the Lord and how he would relate their words. Because Polycarp that we're looking at right now probably had around 15 to 20 years of life where he was in the presence of John the Apostle. So if that helps us time-wise, he's an apostolic father because he was truly a father of the church that was set in his place uh, uh, during the apostolic times and knew the apostles themselves. If you recall, last week we had this map up Ignatius was arrested in Antioch, taken to Rome for martyrdom. On the way, he stopped in Smyrna, which is actually over here, and uh, uh, goes up to Philippi. In, in, in Philippi is where Ignatius wrote the letter back to Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. It's the one letter we didn't look at last week that we're going to look at briefly. In this letter, I think we get a glimpse of what Polycarp was like. Um, this is a letter of an older gentleman talking to a younger gentleman and giving him counsel. If you ever have a chance to give counsel or coaching or, or advice or spiritual mentoring to someone, I think it's not only a reflection of who you are by what you choose to teach them, but I think it's a reflection of who they are by what you choose to teach them. When I sit down with each of my children and I give each of them some bit of parenting, advice. It differs with each child. And that's not because I'm a different parent with Will than I am Gracie or Rachel or Rebecca or Sarah. It's because Will, Gracie, Rachel, Rebecca, and Sarah are all different and they have a different need for advice. Some things I can tell one child that's an absolute waste of time for another. Yet the other child needs some things that the first child may not. Does that make sense? So I think when we look at what Polycarp had to, or what Ignatius had to say to Polycarp, it's very useful for me, not only for what it says about Ignatius, but also for what it says about Polycarp. What was Polycarp like? Well, this is the way Ignatius starts out his letter. He says, So approving am I of your godly mind, which is grounded upon an unmovable rock, that my praise exceeds all bounds, inasmuch as I was judged worthy of seeing your blameless face. That's an incredible thing to say about somebody. It's an incredible thing when you're sitting there and you're about to give someone instruction and advice to say that you have a godly mind 
that your godly mind is upon an unmovable rock. And this is what I would pray that my children would have. And this is a young leader of the church, a young bishop of the church of Smyrna. And at the age of, let's just say, we're going to call him 40. At the age of 40, Ignatius, on his way to martyrdom, recognizes this as a fellow who has a godly mind grounded on an unmovable rock. Is it going to surprise us when we fast forward 50 years that this man's godly mind has not moved? Because it truly was on an immovable rock. Keep this in mind as we fast forward through the life of Polycarp and see how correct Ignatius was in his judgment. Ignatius gives Polycarp counsel about what Polycarp should do. He tells Polycarp about uh, 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 Polycarp's own life. Here's a guy with a godly mind on an unmovable rock. If that's you, here would be the advice to you from Ignatius. Godly mind, unmovable rock, still always pray for more understanding. Always pray for more understanding. Anybody out there want to raise their hand and say, I don't need to, I already have all the understanding I need. I didn't think so. If we don't, then why don't we pray for it? James says, ask for wisdom and God will give it to you. Pray for more understanding. God will give it to you. Don't, not, not only does he say always pray for more understanding, but he says always increase your diligence. Always increase your diligence. Don't, you know, I, 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 there's part of me that, that, that says, well, I've been diligent long enough. I'd like to like take a vacation from diligence for a while. Kind of let uh, my bed go unmade, you know, in, in the, the bed of life. And uh, that's not the counsel here. He says, this is it vacation time? Always pray for more understanding. Always increase your diligence. Be careful. You know, Peter said the same thing. Peter said, always be careful because Satan's like a roaring lion walking around looking for someone to devour. If there truly is a lion out there trying to devour me, I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to be careful. And that's the kind of thing Polycarp's saying. Polycarp says, always wait for the eternal one who is above time. Good advice. Now, Polycarp was also a pastor. He was the bishop of the church. How should Polycarp pastor? The older pastor told him. We get a new pastor one day. He may know these things. If not, he needs to read uh, Ignatius's letter and pick up a few pointers. But I'm trusting he will. Interesting, though, to me what he says. Look at this. Number one, know everyone by name. That's just good practical advice. This is why I could never be a church pastor. I'm terrible with names. I call Becky the wrong name half the time. I'm, my kids, I never get their names right. My biggest problem as a trial lawyer, I tried a case once against this fellow named Ernest Cannon. Ernest has an incredible ability to memorize names. We're in Harris County. I was a baby lawyer. I've been practicing law maybe three or four years. And uh, Ernest uh, 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 got to go first picking the jury. And there were about 60 people that filed in. And you don't know who they are ahead of time. I mean, the judge gives me or the bailiff gave me and gave Ernest the list of these 60, you know, little cards everybody fills out. 
And the judge starts, or the bailiff starts calling them in one by one, sitting them on pews just like this. Twelve across the pew. Twelve across, twelve across, twelve across. Ernest gets up, sets down his sheet. I mean, he's had no more time with that sheet than me. Those people walk in and you hear each one of them called by name as they walk in. He sets his sheet down and picks a jury for an hour asking everybody questions with no notes, calling everybody by name. Miss Riddle, is that true? Yes, it is. Miss Sandy, is that what you find? Miss Harless, do you believe that to be true? I mean, bam, 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 bam. I'm just sitting there. I'm, I'm trying real hard to keep my mouth shut. You Because I can't do it. I mean, I cannot do it. I walked up to the same jury panel. My first question out of my mouth was, as I held up my hand, I said, is anybody out there going to vote against my client because I can't memorize your names as fast as Mr. Cannon? <laughs> and fortunately, nobody said yes. And I was honest. I said, because I've had an hour now, and I've made it halfway through the front row. And that's about all I can memorize. I just can't do names well. But how important is it that you do know names? How important is it? I can remember to this day walking from our youth center building to our church at the Broadway Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas, and where I was in the parking lot when the youth minister's number two youth minister, Carl Cope, said to me, Hello, Mark. And I'd been at that church for six weeks and never dreamed anybody knew my name, much less him. And it made a huge difference in my life. He knew my name. I don't know. It's just good practical advice. Know everyone by name. You're the pastor. You ought to be praying for them. You need to know their name. Preach on how husbands ought to love their wives and wives ought to love their husbands. He gives them sermon material. And preach on wickedness and how to avoid it. Preach on sin. He says, write and send letters around. Get yourself a postal ministry going. Good practical advice to a pastor. And Polycarp followed the advice. Let me show you what I mean. Ignatius says it this way to Polycarp. Since I've not been able to write to all the churches, as the divine will commands, you must write. As God inspires you, write to the churches. Tell them what's going on. And so what does Polycarp do? He hauls off and writes a letter to the Philippians. He followed the advice of the older pastor. He writes to Philippians and he says to him, Have you all heard any news on Ignatius' martyrdom? And I assume he's dead. Everybody's assuming he's dead. We've heard he's dead, but we don't have any details. How did it go? You know, did he die? And how did it work out? And then he says to the Philippians uh, 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 a number of things that have Scripture just oozing from every pore. This was a pastor deeply steeped in the word of the Lord. We're in 110 A.D. 110 A.D. And when this fellow writes, let me show you just in the first four verses how many scriptures that Polycarp either quotes or refers to. That's in the first four verses of his letter. Acts 2, 1 Peter 1, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, By grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. 1 Peter 1, 13, Psalm 2, 11, 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection, 
Philippians 2.10, Philippians 3.21. Like the Philippians really needed that, you know. They, they got, hey, we got the original, thanks. Um, Acts 10, Luke 11, 1 Peter 1.21. Now this guy, this is a man who had a godly mind on an immovable rock. He knew the word of the Lord. If you read through his entire letter, you're going to see references to scriptures coming out of these books. Matthew, Luke, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Hebrews, Ephesians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, and 1 John. I write letters, probably write three or four a day. I don't know that I've ever referenced all of those books. Of course, most of my letters are legal letters that I write, but even still, that's an incredible amount of scripture that this fellow, and understand when he's writing the letters, it's not like he's sitting there saying, hey, uh, send someone down to the library to pull out that scroll. And he's read those letters and he's read those books enough to where they're just part of his character and he's able, he doesn't quote them word for word always. Generally, he just uses their language. Pretty impressive. Polycarp clearly had been a fan of St. Paul's. And as we get into how the Bible was put together, we're going to study this in more detail because Polycarp's one of the reasons we know that by 110 A.D., the church was already passing around Paul's collections, recognizing them as Scripture and following them as the Word of the Lord. We know that he says, uh, Polycarp says on Paul, only as it is said in these Scriptures, be angry but do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, the first part of that, be angry and do not sin, is in the Old Testament. It's in Psalms 4, verse 5. But the rest of it, do not let the sun go down on your anger, is not in the Old Testament. It's in Ephesians. So you see, Paul in Ephesians starts out and says, be angry but do not sin, because Paul is quoting Psalm 4. And then Paul adds, do not let the sun go down on your anger. But already by 110 A.D., this pillar of the church, Polycarp, this student of the Apostle John, already recognized the writings of Paul as Scripture. He says, don't, don't ever think my writings and Paul's are the same. There's a big difference between ours. Neither I nor anyone like me can keep pace with the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul, who accurately and reliably taught the word concerning the truth. Paul's writings are in a class by themselves. They're dead on accurate. It's the word of truth. Nobody's going to write in my generation like the Apostle Paul did. And this is the understanding that the church had by the Holy Spirit that brought the church to venerate the writings of Paul in the New Testament and to put the other writings into the New Testament as we'll look at in uh, probably three weeks or so. He says, study Paul's letters carefully. That also tells you that Paul's letters were already being passed around. The Philippians not only had Paul's letter to their church, but they probably had the whole collection of Paul's letters as well. Um, so, Polycarp on Christian virtue, what does he say? He says, to be compassionate, to be merciful to all, turning back those who've gone astray, visit all the sick, don't neglect a widow. Don't neglect an orphan. Don't neglect a poor person. 
very different than the way the world treated people. Very different. That's the Christianity virtue that he taught. He said, avoid all anger, partiality, unjust judgment. Stay far away from all love of money. Don't be quick to believe things spoken against anyone. Don't be harsh in judgment. Know we're all in debt with respect to sin. Don't be quick to believe things spoken against anyone. We, we have a friend here who's... Uh, I, I trade emails back with a number of y'all. Patricia's one of them. Patricia's running for office. An email, uh, a mail-out gets sent that trashes her. Well, it's not true. And you just hope and pray that people will, be quick, uh, uh, will, will not be quick to believe things spoken against her. I, I have people... Um, uh, I got a call from uh, a reporter in New Jersey this week. And she said, have you, no, he said, a uh, fellow, Jeff May, he said, have you seen what uh, this company I'm about to try this lawsuit against, uh, have you seen what they filed in front of the judge? I said, no. So what does it say? Well, they filed a paper in front of the judge asking that you not be uh, allowed to be, in essence, you. <laughs> I said, really? What does it say? It says, well, it really, it just says, don't let Mark Lanier come in and try this case as Mark Lanier. And I said, can you flesh that out for me? Yes, they don't want you to reference the fact that you have a family and you're a family man. You can't tell that to the jury. Don't reference the fact that you're a Christian or that you teach or anything like that. Don't reference, uh, don't, don't say that uh, 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 we've done evil or wicked things or that we've lied. Um, don't, and it lists about 15 things. And he said, what do you have to say about that? I said, well, I can tell you one thing. He said, what's that? I said, well, I'm not going to tell him I'm a pagan bachelor. <laughs> and he said, he said, oh, what are you going to say? I said, you know, what should I write? He said, I said, just write. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be honest and I'm going to do the best job I can. He said, well, don't you want to say some nasty things about them? I said, no, I don't. I said, Judge already knows him anyway. I mean, th this is coming from a, a company whose last set of lawyers that filed these papers cussed out the judge and got into a yelling match with the judge, and the judge threatened to throw him in jail. So, I mean, like she's going to be upset because I'm going to come in and be a nice family guy who likes to teach his Sunday school class. I think I'm okay. <laughs> but you don't want to be quick to believe the things that are... You know, this, is, this is Christian virtue. Don't be harsh in judgment. We're all in debt with respect to sin. What is the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. Or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because we're all in debt. We're all trespassers. Oh. Um, now, the last writing we're going to look at this morning, is the third writing, is the martyrdom of Polycarp. And this is... Um, this is a, 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 how he actually died. It's a letter from the church at Smyrna to the church at Philomelium. Philomelium. Philomelium is a little town that doesn't exist anymore. It's somewhere over there in Turkey. Okay. Philomelium uh, is not the only people who are going to get it. This letter is meant to be circulated, but this martyrdom letter was written by eyewitnesses to the death of Polycarp. I cannot read this without being moved. This moves me immensely. 
Um, it's, it's interesting to me. It starts out by talking about martyrdom generally. And it says, you know, we don't want to blame God for martyrs. We don't want to blame God for people dying. We don't want to blame God for Perry's dad dying. We don't want to blame God for my dad dying. We don't want to blame God for Mark Potter's wife dying on Friday, a friend of mine. We don't want to blame God for these things. So we're not blaming God, but the martyrdoms still recognizes this. The martyrdoms have taken place in accordance with the will of God. For we must reverently assign to God the power over all things. We're not going to blame God because honestly it was God's design that man should never die. But man dies now as a fallen creature under sin and the curse of sin. So we don't blame God, but we recognize that this has taken place in accordance with His will because we reverently, with awe, assign to God the power over everything. Pretty profound talks about how martyrdoms were affecting uh, uh, the church itself, that the martyrs were dying quietly, and, and it was uh, very profound for everyone who was watching, the way the martyrs would not scream and beg for their lives, but would quietly accept the fate that was handed to them. It says that when they were dying, they were so torn by whips, the internal structure of the flesh was visible as far as the inner veins and arteries. There are other descriptions equally graphic about what was going on. It was not a pretty thing. It was not a happy thing. But it's something that the martyrs themselves bore testimony to the blood of Jesus by their attitudes and the way that they handled the crisis. It says the martyrs did so in such a way that bystanders would even have pity and weep because of what was going on. Another interesting thing it says is the martyrs would frequently have visions of Jesus as they were facing their death and would cry out to that effect, like Stephen did in Acts chapter 7 as he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. Obviously, we have no way of checking the vision, but I have no doubt that God gave them whatever they needed in that moment. Side note. The martyrdom of Polycarp writes about this fellow named Quintus. Quintus was a Christian who decided he needed to turn himself in and be a martyr. And not only that, he talked a bunch of people into the church into going with him. Hey, come on, let's do it together. Let's be martyrs. Then when he got there and they started grilling him and threatening him and saying, okay, you're really about to die, he recanted and gave up his faith. And so the letter says, for this reason... Christians shouldn't be like voluntarily going down and confessing, you know, going to finding the authorities and saying, oh, here I am, kill me. And if the authorities find you and the authorities arrest you and the authorities put you to death, so be it. But this is not a suicide run. Martyrdom is not something where you voluntarily go give your life up for your purposes. The God of these martyrs is not the God of the terrorist bombers today that want to go out there and positively kill themselves and take out a bunch of others. Far be it. Polycarp died, what, 1850 years or so ago, coming up on uh, two or three days. We'll have the anniversary of his death. We can date his death because it's in there. It's dated. 
it tells us that he died seven days before the Kalends of March. Kalends comes from a Latin word. Um, all right, Justin, you might know this and I might not. There's a Latin word that means to call out. It's like uh, colonere col, or colere or something. I don't remember. But it's something like that. Okay? Calends comes from it because originally in the Roman calendar, there was a priest who was in charge uh, of the uh, uh, calendar system. The Romans had a messed up calendar till Julius Caesar came along. Julius helped out the calendar, okay? He gave us like uh, a couple extra months because like originally the Roman calendar only had like eight months or so, nine, ten months. They had about 305 days to the year. And then what they do when all the days were up for the year is they just declare it winter. And they wouldn't have any months until winter was over. And then they'd start all over again with January. Okay? And that's how they'd keep it going. Okay? So Julius Caesar comes in and says, we can do better than this. Let's add a few months. Okay? And so he boosts the months up to 12, boosts the days up to 365, but they're still going to be off a day every four years. So he says every four years we'll crank an extra day into February. And what they would do originally is they'd crank in time in February after February 23rd. So on leap year, the real leap day is supposed to be February 24th, not not the 29th. You just moved everybody back a few days because they kept days of the week by market. Totally irrelevant, kind of trivia. Anyway, so the priest would call out every time there'd be the, the new moon. He, there's one guy whose job it was to decide, do I see a sliver? If I see a sliver of a moon, I'm going to call out. And that became Callens. That was his calling. He would call out the first day of the month. Okay? So the calends in the Roman calendar is the first day of the month. Seven days before the March the 1st is when Polycarp was martyred. Now we know it's February 22nd or 23rd because we don't know if it was a leap year that year. Did they add the fourth? You know, we know leap year is every year of a presidential election, but we weren't having presidential elections back then, so we don't know whether or not that was a leap year year. So February 22nd or February 23rd is the day around 2 in the afternoon that the martyrdom took place. Let me tell you how it happened. The community had been crying out for Polycarp to be killed. Polycarp was an old man. He was the father of the church. He was the bishop of the church, and the community wanted him. And so the community had been crying out, get Polycarp, get Polycarp, get Polycarp. And a captain of the guard decided that he would take it upon himself to do it. So he found a couple of slave boys, and he tortured the slave boys. He tortured the slave boys to find out where Polycarp was. See, the church had taken Polycarp out of town, and they'd taken him to a farmhouse out on the outskirts of town and hidden him away in the farmhouse. Well, when the two slave boys had been tortured adequately, they finally gave up Polycarp's location, and they said, well, he's out at this farmhouse. And all Polycarp had been doing, all he did at this point in his life, is pray. He ate and he prayed. He spent hours and hours in prayer. And it's interesting when he prayed. He prayed for everybody by name. See, he knew all their names. That's what he'd been taught 50 years earlier. Know them all by name. And it specifically says he prayed for the names of everybody in the church. By name. He would pray constantly. 
for the by the names of all the people he had met and known. So Polycarp's out at the farmhouse, and Polycarp's uh, spending his time in prayer, eating and sleeping, I'm sure. And uh, here he is, an old man. And, and what, the, sold, what the, the authorities do is they mount up in full armor a bunch of horsemen. Okay? Now, a Roman horseman in full armor is pretty fearsome. I mean, they conquered the known world. So here are these horsemen and these policemen in full armor, and they all go out to this farmhouse together, the big posse, to get this old man who's praying at the farmhouse. And it seems kind of ridiculous. The farmhouse gets word that the soldiers are coming. They think there's time to move Polycarp, the old man, from where he is to another farmhouse. Polycarp says, look, just let God's will be done. I don't need to run. So Polycarp, may God's will be done, stays there. And the soldiers come and they find him upstairs laying in bed. And they arrest him. And they bring him down. And while they bring him down, Polycarp says, can I please have an hour to pray? And the soldiers are a bit embarrassed that there they are in their full get-up and their full gear and they've got their drawn swords and they've got their spears and they've got their shields. And here's this 90-year-old decrepit man making his way down the stairs. And he says to them, can I have an hour to pray? They said, well, yeah, I guess. And before Polycarp prays, he turns to the farm people and he says, would you please give the soldiers some food and something to drink? Because it's supper time and they probably haven't eaten. Soldiers, oh. And the farmhouse feeds them the best food they've got and the best drink, and the soldiers indulge Polycarp for his time of prayer, probably not knowing that Polycarp was going to stand there at the table with them and pray out loud <laughs> by name for everyone he'd ever come into contact with. And he prayed for two hours, not one. And when he was done, he said, okay, I'm ready. And so they take Polycarp, and they do it regretfully. They regretted taking such a godly old man, but they had their instructions from the captain of the guard, and they had to bring him back. So they put him on a donkey, and they take him to the authorities. When they show up the authorities, the authorities, the captain, the head police guy, whose name just happens to be Herod, and, and the church itself even writes with irony, he gets taken to a man named Herod, Herod is in his wagon. This was a Roman traveling wagon, kind of that's been rebuilt. And so they get this 90-year-old Polycarp up into the wagon where the captain, Herod, is with the captain's father. No doubt an old man as well. So the captain's father and the captain, they say to, to, to uh, Polycarp, they say, look, you've got you to recant, Okay we get you to recant, everything's going to be okay. In fact, all you got to do is say, Caesar is Lord, and just burn some incense. If you do that, everything's going to be okay. Polycarp, meanwhile, isn't saying a thing. He's just sitting there. They're saying, yo, old man. You know, they're wondering, is he hard of hearing? No, it's not that. He's hearing. Why won't he answer? What is wrong with this old man? And so they keep pressing him. Just say Caesar is Lord. Just burn some incense. And finally, Polycarp speaks up. 
and says, I'm not going to do what you're suggesting to me. So at that point, things got a little nastier and the threats started coming. If you don't do it, you know what's going to happen. And they start jostling him a little bit. Right now, we're going to get you out of the wagon. We're going to march you straight to the stadium. The stadium's already packed. People are already there for other events. They're, they've been calling out your name. So the last thing in the world you want me to do is hand you over to the proconsul. Once we get out of this wagon, boom, all offers are off the table. Right now, we're just in the wagon. Nobody else out here. Just say it to us. Just burn a little incense with us. We'll tell everybody. You can go back to the farmhouse. You can go back to your church. Polycarp, I'm not going to do what you're suggesting to me. So they said, okay. And they shove him out. In the process, this old man getting out of the wagon, he bangs up his shin real bad. Bleeds. And the witnesses to it said that he stood up and tried to act like nothing had happened to his leg and made it a point to walk as good as he could with as much energy as he could so they didn't think his leg was hurt and that it would bother him. You know and I know what was going on in his brain. He's just, and he banged up his leg. He's under the emotional pressure. He's under the spiritual pressure. He's in the battle. And this 90-year-old man who doesn't have all the energy in the world, whose body's probably not in the best of shape, tries to hobble without showing he's hobbling because he's walking for his Lord and his faith. And so he gets taken into the stadium and he gets taken to the proconsul. And the stadium's packed. And the proconsul says, before, before he says to the proconsul, as he goes in, a voice from heaven that the Christians heard. They don't know if the pagans heard it. But Polycarp hears a voice from heaven and the Christians with him that says, Be strong, Polycarp, and act like a man. And Polycarp goes in. The proconsul says, Hey, old man, have respect for your age. Come on. All you've got to do is swear by the genius of Caesar. And you can go get your shin taken care of, and you'll be all right. Polycarp won't answer him either. Polycarp just stands there. And as the proconsul continues to push him and to push him, the proconsul says, look, all you got to do is say, away with the atheists. Remember we talked last week about how that's the biggest charge against Christians. They wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as Lord. They wouldn't acknowledge all the other gods. They called Christians atheists. So the proconsul says, just say away with the atheists. And at that, Ignatius, uh, Polycarp looks up because that's something he could say. But Polycarp looks up at the crowd and he waves at all of them with his hand and he says, away with the atheists. Proconsul says, okay, well, that didn't go the way I thought. <laughs> so he says, you're not getting it. You just need to swear by the genius of Caesar and revile your faith. Polycarp looks at him, this old man, and he draws up all the strength he's got. 
And he draws in a deep breath so his voice can be heard above the crowd. And he says the following. If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as you request and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I'm a Christian. If you vainly suppose that I would swear by the genius of Caesar, listen carefully. I'm a Christian. Now, if you want to learn the doctrine of Christianity, you name a day and you give me a hearing and I'll teach you about it. The proconsul says, look, I have wild beasts that I can set out on you unless you repent. Polycarp says, whoever repents from right to wrong, call for the wild beasts. Let's get it on. The proconsul says, ah, oh, well, if wild beasts don't scare you, I'll have you burned alive. Polycarp says, it's better to burn here than to burn in hell. Why are you waiting? Come on, you do what you want to do. And things start to spiral out of control. Things start going quickly. The crowd's hearing this, and the crowd goes out through the gates and starts gathering timber and kindling and everything it takes. And they get a stake, and they get ready to, 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 to nail Polycarp to the stake. And Polycarp takes off his own clothes and his own sandals. And he looks at him and says, You don't need to nail me to the stake. I'm not going anywhere. I want to read you something. He said, leave me as I am, because he who enables me to endure the fire will enable me to remain on the pyre without moving, even without the sense of security which you get from the nails. So they did not nail him. They tied him instead. And Polycarp looked up to heaven and said, Lord God Almighty, Father of the beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, I bless you. Now, this... Uh, This touches me, and it touches me because of something that, that I should have put up here, but I didn't. I've left out a critical part of this story. I've left out my favorite line. Toward the end, right before he said, call for the wild beast, the proconsul said, have respect for your age. Swear the oath and I will release you. Revile Christ. Listen to these words from Polycarp. Polycarp replied, For 86 years I've walked with God as his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
We don't know how old Polycarp was because we don't know how long he lived before he became a Christian. But for 86 years, he'd followed God and God had never sold him up the river. Why on earth was he going to sell God out? And so as he says amen, they lit the fire and the fire doesn't burn him up. It's like the wind, a, a sail that poofs out from the wind. It goes everywhere except where he is. So the proconsul has to send in someone with a sword to kill him. And the blood comes out and then his body begins to be burned. The captain of the, the, the father of the captain says to the proconsul, you better cremate the body, make sure that whole body gets burned or people are gonna come out and they're gonna claim that this guy's, they're gonna quit worshiping Jesus and they're gonna worship this guy. I mean, there's never been anything like this. And the people who wrote this letter, the church said, they didn't know that we'll never be able to abandon the Christ who suffered for the salvation of the whole world, of those who are saved, the blameless on behalf of sinners or to worship anyone else. And that's what happened to Polycarp. I want to remind you of one thing before points for home. When he wrote the Philippians 50 years earlier, Polycarp said, pray for the kings, the powers, and the rulers. Pray for those who persecute you and hate you and for the enemies of the cross in order that your fruit might be evident among all people. Polycarp practiced what he preached points for home. Actions speak louder than words, both to God and to man. You live right, I live right, the world will see a difference. Have confidence in what God's doing in your life. It's not outside of his will, whatever you're going through, whatever's happening, have confidence what God's doing. He'll work all things out for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Okay. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you so much for the inspiration that we draw from our Christian brother, Polycarp. And thank you for the way that you take care of each one of us in our own world and in our own problems and our own circumstances. It is an honor to have you as king. Please build us up with the courage, the stamina, and the faith to walk through injuries, to speak through deceit, and to keep our eyes trained on you throughout our life and our death. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen.